Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Julia Turner, and this is the Slate Culture Gab Fest, a podcast takes a lot of work edition. It's Wednesday, August 17th, 2022. On today's show, is the new A24 thriller Bodies, Bodies, Bodies a triumph of TikTok horror or a bust? And then Paper Girls the Amazon Prime adaptation of a Brendan K. Vaughn comic about newspaper delivery tweens and cosmic time mysteries. And then finally, Netflix's beef with the unofficial Bridgerton musical, a fan art project that it tolerated until it didn't. Steve and Dana are away this week, but never fear. Joining me today is friend of the show, soon to be uh, knighted as O-U-K-F-O-P, official United <laughs> Kingdom friend of the program and co-host of Slate's Working Podcast, June Thomas. Hi, June. Hey, Julia. Thank you. I, I can't wait to be invested. Can we do like the thing with the sword and the kneeling somehow yeah. via Zoom? I don't uh, have a sword. No. And also, you know, after buddies, 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 I don't want to be anywhere near any swords. Fair enough. Okay, it's going to be a virtual knighting ceremony with invisible swords. <laughs> Boop, we did it. She's a knight now. Fantastic. Woo! Um, we're also going to be joined today by an array of illustrious expert guests who I'll introduce as they arrive. And first up, we have our very own editorial assistant at Slate Magazine, Nadira Goff, joining for Bodies, Bodies, Bodies. Welcome, Nadira. Hey, glad to be here again. All right. Well, Bodies, Bodies, Bodies is a new horror film from boutique hip indie distributor A24. It's directed by Helena Rain, uh, screenplay by Sarah DeLapp, and story by Kristen Rapinian, she of uh, Cat Person, the story that went megavi and engendered a bunch of discussion when that story's backstory came out in the pages of Slate. It stars Amanda Stenberg, Maria Bakalova, um, with an important bit of acting from Pete Davidson, um, and features essentially the travails of a bunch of 20-somethings who are way too online, who all gather at one of their fancy houses to have a party during a hurricane. They play bodies, 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 which is basically killer or mafia, and then the lights go out and violence ensues. <laughs> um, violence and, you know, many fraught confrontations amongst the friends and members of this group. So before we dig in, let's listen to a clip. Here you're going to hear uh, some characters getting real with each other about how much they actually esteem each other and each other's work. 
I don't know what you're talking about. You hate listen to her podcast. We... What? And you made a swear on our lives not to tell anyone. Jordan, is that true? I like your podcast, Alice. What is your podcast about? Hanging out with your smartest and funniest friend. Did you just groan? No. When I said hanging out with your smartest and funniest friend. Like that. Like that. You did it again. No, I didn't. First of all, a podcast takes a lot of work. Okay? You have to organize the guests, you have to do a Google Calendar, and, and you, you build a following. It takes a long time, and I've been working on it for a while. <laughs> um, we hear there the voice of Rachel Sennett, who um, was a breakout in the film Shiva Baby, um, and is also a fun internet comedian in her own right. Um, and you can hear in that clip uh, both the tonal promise and maybe the tonal problem of this film. The main characters are both being followed and we're concerned about them, but they're also being satirized and skewered. And um, sometimes it works better than others. Nadira, I know you've seen this film and have been engaged in many heated discussions about it. Can you tell us what you thought of it? Does it work? You know... I've talked to a lot of people, as you said, and there have been a lot of heated debates. And I was very surprised to find that there are many people who actively dislike this film, not even just think it's okay, but actively dislike. As someone who is on the cusp between Gen Z and Millennial, I really enjoyed this film. I thought it was funny. I thought it was scary in the certain moments it needed to be, but I'm not that big of a fan of horror films anyway, so I didn't need it to be any scarier. But mostly I thought it was actually good commentary on Gen Z and how we talk to each other, how we think about ourselves, how we interact, our relationships with technology and with audience, you know, and I really enjoyed it. I really love the sound of the movie that you described, which doesn't (laughs) sound that much like the movie I saw. June, what did you make of this film? Oh, I'm that person that Nadira has been arguing with. Uh, I I wanted to like it because apart from it, then I was like, I know that a movie like this that sells itself as like, what was it that, that Lena Dunham, you know, the voice of the generation, like these are, this is the, the country house drama of, of a generation. And I was like, I, there's nothing new here for me. I want it to be a bit different from like the Agatha Christie version. Right. The only difference here is that the Agatha Christie version is good. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I'm so glad that you found that clip because I did laugh because I had forgotten that there was anything funny in it. Like, it just felt, I didn't hate it, I guess, because I just found it so meh. I just, so many of the things that I think were supposed to be, you know, this is the TikTok generation version. Like, I saw so much of it in other shows. You know, there's a bit where they're, the group of them just kind of and constantly are doing TikTok dances. And at one moment, Lee Pace, who's almost like the dad figure, uh, comes in and, and, so tries to do it and messes up. I saw that exact scene in a Netflix show called uh, Get Close, I think it was called, or Stay Close. Um, you know, the, the power goes out. Well, again, that's in every Agatha Christie movie. There's nothing new about this. Um, you know, a podcast, okay, that was a funny line, but I feel like, honestly, it's harder to find a movie these days or a TV show that doesn't involve somebody making a podcast. Like, it just didn't do anything for me. I just sort of like, okay, when's it? When's the good stuff going to start? It just seemed a bit of a, a mess to me. I think I came down a little bit in the middle. I mean, I the concept of this is so exciting, right? Like to, first of all, 
give me black comedy horror over real horror any day. Like same. Yeah. Yeah. Regular listeners to the show know I do not like watching horror movies. We keep making me watch horror movies. It was not fun to watch this horror movie. And actually, this is like the only horror movie that I've ever watched where I've been like, I wish that was more scary. (laughs) Because it, it, you know, without spoiling too much for this conversation, it's, it's pretty clear from pretty early on that there are a couple potential explanations for what's happening in the house. And um, one of them might be there's a terrible, terrible big bad. And one of them might be, um, you know, a little bit more embedded in the psyches of these people we're getting to know and the culture that they're embedded in. Um, And it just, the kind of potential for something dark and funny where you both are rooting for and sympathizing with the girl who's overly fixated on her podcast and also can laugh at her when, you know, if the, if the whole tone of the movie were as taut and in between as that little clip we heard, I feel like I would have liked it a lot more. But instead, the tone of the movie is sort of weirdly sincere and yet we don't really feel like we get to know the characters very well. I I just... I wished that the film was either meaner or more sympathetic. Like it seemed like it was a bit betwixt in between. Did you have that response at all, Nadira? Yeah, I completely agree. I think my biggest sort of critique of this film is that it doesn't give us enough time with any of the characters. And by the time that some of them die, as we know, some of them will, when they die, I just was kind of like, but what did I know about them? Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It seemed like the film was really focused on trying to get a specific group of characters towards the end so that it could have a specific set of scenes or conversations. And I think that those scenes and conversations were really good. The ones that show the girls sort of eviscerating each other verbally. I think that that is when the movie is at its smartest. It deals a lot in the way that Gen Z actually talks to each other. And I think what's so stellar about those moments is even though you get funny moments like Alice saying her podcast takes a lot of work and her saying she has body dysmorphia when someone else claims that their mother actually has a very serious and severe mental health issue, you still know that they still love Alice, even though she says all those ridiculous things. And you know that even though they're tearing each other down, if it wasn't a slasher film and if they could all walk out of that house at the end of the day, that they would all walk out still friends. And I think that that has a lot to do with the way Gen Z thinks about itself. Like we are very self-referential. I think that we're very aware of the fact that we're self-obsessed, but we're also very aware that society has been set up in a way to sort of keep us that way because they can sell us lots of things or they can market us lots of things. And I don't think that that's something that we think is good, but it's something that we definitely know. And I think the movie doesn't really get into that deeply until that second half. But the first half is really a lot of setup for people dying that we don't know much yeah. about. And I really wish that we could get to know them more. Yeah, I mean, I also don't ever wish movies are longer. This is like a nice 90-minute movie. but And I I can't say it needed to get longer. I think it actually just needed to have a different first 45 minutes. Like, the aesthetic is really fun, you know. And the the aesthetic of the house is a little odd. It seems like kind of, it's not pure McMansion. It's like McMansion with hipster pretensions or something, which was (laughs) also kind of intriguing. Um, But... The, like the aesthetic is great, the music is great. 
a lot of the actors are quite good. Like, you know, it, this is Maria ba- Bakalova's follow-up to her very acclaimed breakout performance in the most recent Borat film. Um, Amanda Stenberg obviously has, has been holding our attention on screens for years now. Um, even, even Pete Davidson's pretty fun to see in this part. And Lee Pace is incredibly charismatic and interesting. Yeah. Um, not, you know, and the Rachel Senate performances, Alice, that we heard the podcast lines from is terrific. There's a lot here, but it, it, it kind of needed a trip through the pacing blender, I think. Um, yeah. or maybe even a couple of the characters needed to be cut and the, I, you know, the, the, the twist ending without getting too much into what the twist ending is, has a bit of a quality of like deflating the souffle, I think. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I think you're right, Nadira, that towards the end of the film, the relationships start to gel and the scenes start to crackle a little bit more and we start to care about what happens to all these people in a different way. And it starts to get funnier, like we're kind of yeah. with them and we're with them and against them at the same time in a more electric way that feels new and exciting. And then <laughs> the finale is a little bit of a like, boop, like puff. the whole thing kind of pops a little bit, the air comes out. Yeah, I wanted more, like, I, I guess I just wasn't served at what I was expecting. You know, I, mm. I, and I did go into this with this expectation that like, this is this generation's version of a, a kind of film. I'm not really so fond of the slasher version, but the mystery version is one of my favorite genres. Um, and I expected there to be kind of setup of, oh, you know, you, you old folks, you have some really bad ideas about this this young generation, and I wanted them to be undercut. And I didn't get that. And I always think that when people say, I didn't get what I want, well, that's not what the filmmaker is supposed to do. You know, just because you didn't get what you want, that's no, that just doesn't have anything to do with the quality of the film. But I just think it like, it didn't question itself. It just, it didn't, it, I wanted one more gear that I think would have made it much more interesting, much more complex. Um, yeah. And I agree with you both like that, that kind of jealousy and, and just the strong emotions that felt like real emotions uh, and not the kind of performed emotions that we had at the beginning. I was starting to get interested, but by that point it was done. Yeah, I think I kind of err on the side that it could have been a little meaner. I don't know what it is about Gen Z, but we like watching mess and we (laughs) like watching people be horrible. I think that's because maybe more than any other generation, though I'm not actually sure about this. So emphasis on the maybe we're just aware that like life sucks and that people are trash. And so I don't necessarily (laughs) feel like (laughs) I need to root for anyone. You know, Mm -hmm. I don't feel like I need to want someone to make it out of that house alive. I'm just there for the mess that they get into while they're in it. And I think that I wanted there to be more of that, you know, and I really enjoyed it when it was there. And I think that's a part of the reason why I really like this movie and the ending, but I just wanted there to be just a little bit more. Well, it's certainly an intriguing mess and a visually striking mess and a mess with a good soundtrack and a mess with some good performances um, and a mess with, at least a few very funny lines. Uh, so certainly if the trailer intrigued you, it's worth checking out. It's Bodies, Bodies, Bodies from May 24. Uh, you can see it in theaters right now. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on all your favorite products at Apple, 
2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right. Well, now is the time in our podcast when we talk about the business. June, what have we got today? Thank you, Julia. Our only item of business is to tell you about today's Slap Plus segment. I am actually moving next week to Scotland, to Edinburgh, and Julia wanted to do a kind of exit interview with me. So we'll be talking about why I'm leaving, what I'm looking forward to, what I think I'm going to miss, that kind of thing. So if you're a Slate Plus member, you'll hear that conversation at the very end of the show. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you can sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Members get ad-free podcasts and lots of bonus content like the Slate Plus segment I just mentioned. And members get unlimited access to all the great writing on slate.com. You'll never hit a paywall if you're a Slate Plus member. I should also mention that you'll be supporting our work and the work of our brilliant colleagues. These memberships are really important to Slate, so please sign up today at slate.com slash culture plus. Again, that's slate.com slash culture plus. All right, for our second segment of the show, we are joined by brand spanking new friend of the program, Hillary Fry, perhaps better known to you as the new editor-in-chief of Slate. Welcome, Hillary. Thank you so much for having me. We're very, very excited to have you here. Um, today, we are going to discuss for this segment, Paper Girls, which is the new Amazon Prime show from showrunners Stephanie Folsom and Christopher C. Rogers, based on a comic by Brendan K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang. That's about the travails of four paper girls in the late 1980s who set out one night to deliver their newspapers and find themselves transported in a pod to the future where they meet their future selves and contemplate fate, life, and the universe, and people with weird sort of Buffy-ass costumes walk around with giant blue guns. Um, Before we dig into our conversation, we're going to listen to a clip. Uh, You know, here we're going to hear the four girls in the 1980s as their paper run morning is starting to go very, very strange. Later on in the show, they will start to encounter their grown-up selves in the future. One of them is played marvelously by Ali Wong. But in this clip here, we're going to hear the tweens as they begin to apprehend the coming chaos. Maybe everybody has already been evacuated. That's standard procedure when there's a nuclear attack. I don't know there's a nuclear attack. You think it could be aliens? I'm just saying we don't know. There's my walkie. heck language is that? I think it's Russian. That's not funny. Come on. I'm not trying to be funny. Okay, guys, something is seriously wrong here. I know this is gonna sound insane, but did anyone see any actual people on our ride over here? Come on, it's fuck you o'clock early in the morning. No, no, she's right. Just come to think of it, I didn't see cars moving either. Did you? No? All right. Well, uh, Hillary's prime qualification in joining us today, in addition to her editor-in-chiefdom, is uh, that she is the mom of at least one Paper Girls superfan who I I believe um, provided some documentation for this podcast. So uh, if you could, Hillary, share your experience with the show and then your response to it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, first, um, my daughter's 10 and a half, and it's awesome watching this with her because the girls are at least, I know Tip is a 1975er and that's when I was born. So 
like, I love the music in the show, which I could talk about this whole time. Um, my daughter doesn't so much, she's not a Danzig fan. Um, but <laughs> it's really, you know, I think the show is TV 14 or 16 or something, but it's really hitting this amazing moment as a mother-daughter watch for the two of us watching these girls. You know, they're going into middle school. My daughter's going into fifth grade. They're dealing with their bodies, their identity, um, their gender expression, which, you know, maybe we didn't talk about so much and so openly in 1988, uh, but is very much part of of our lives now. So it's really, um, in addition to a great watch. I'm really enjoying the show um, as, I, as I get through it with her. Uh, it's giving us a lot to talk about just in our relationship too. That sounds like an amazing way to watch it. Um, June, can you describe the show's aesthetics a bit and maybe put it in the context of kind of other TV relationship sci-fi, which is a bucket I just invented but would put it into? <laughs> Well, uh, the way I'm interpreting that question, Julia, is for me to use the two words that are most often uh, kind of mentioned uh, within a sentence of, of explaining what Paper Girls is, which is to compare it to Stranger Things, uh, another show set in the 80s with a sort of sci-fi vibe that involves riding around on bicycles and that kind of different uh, amount of freedom that kids used to have, at least, uh, you know, according to the stories we tell when we talk about these shows. Um, you know, it's a, a show with a lot of different things going on. There are these kids discovering their future, which you would think would be kind of enough for a show. Honestly, that's what I would be interested in. But there is also this big bad, a really terrifying peril, which are these people with w weird costumes and, and strange looking guns. Uh, and then we also learn and they, so, you know, people with guns. They can kill you, I guess. And then also we learn something which actually I find more scary, perhaps as an older person, which is that they can also take away your memory. So a lot going on. Um, but in the middle of the sci-fi-ness of it all, that sci-fi bucket, it's a little bit kind of sub-Doctor Who, which is a pretty low sub. Uh, it's a pretty low barrier. Like you often find people watching battles happen somewhere else through a window because they're in a separate building. Um, you know, they, it's just, it was a little bit of a cheap show, which I, I think is fine because I do think that the thing that's most interesting about it are the relationships among the girls and that, that those questions of a person's future. But I, I was a little disappointed with the kind of look and feel of it. I think they could just have spent a bit more money or maybe just avoided some of that obvious cheapness that, that they invoked. What did you think about that? It's interesting that Stranger Things comes up so much because to me, it yeah. didn't seem like the clearest parallel. Like, yes, there's the 80s and the music and the bikes, but this felt to me a lot more like it had the the budget and the interests of it felt more in keeping with Doctor mm -hmm. Who or Buffy the Vampire Slayer and that it's about like what it is to be a teenager and then the best possible version of it would be using the fantasy elements, in this case, sci-fi, time travel. And as you know, June, the very potent question of like, you spend your whole tween teen lives wondering, who am I going to be? Who am I going to be? Like, what choice am I making? Who am I hanging out with? What am I wearing? And what yeah. does it mean about who I am and who I'm going to be? And then if you, like, meet who you become and you think they kind of suck, Damn. What, is that? what does that tell you? You know, sort of like tween promise meeting middle-age compromise is 
really rich and interesting and I think the acting is largely really good and and the and the potential of that feels super rich and so you know to me Buffy which is a show about the like pressures and powers of being a teenage girl kind of leaned in to the beeness of its effects like it felt confident in pacing and tone with its use of the subpar effects and this show had so much promise and potential in its relationships but there was something really slack and strange about the pacing and the priorities and who we met first. I mean, you know, one of my main takeaways from watching the show is like, wow, I'd like to go back and read the comics. It seems like an interesting premise for the comic, but like the whole opening sequence, we just meet a disoriented, wordless Ali Wong in the present slash future in orange light. And it's like, I don't care. Well, there's like five minutes of her just mm-hmm. shuffling around in her bedroom. It's like, I, this is not, you know, I would not have kept watching were it not for the fact that I was discussing it here with you today. Um, how does, how, how did you feel about that aesthetic question, Hillary? And, and how did it intersect with some of the more um, interpersonal stuff that the show does better? It's interesting because I was thinking earlier about how much time we spend watching Ali Wong lumber around also. I, I, I mm-hmm. actually, I'm kind of mesmerized by how her body moves on this show. Yes. Um, it, she's so uncomfortable, and I, I find that kind of compelling. Um, I think for me, watching the interaction between um, especially Mac and KJ, so right, of the four girls, you know, they're different. I, I, I'm not convinced about the acting, actually, with the young actors. I think the young woman who plays KJ is kind of out acting the other three it doesn't really yes. bother me but there's something really energetic coming off of her character and seeing you know the seeds kind of be planted for the way some of the themes are going to unroll in terms of like sexuality and um encountering their future selves there's this great moment when mac who we don't see really smile at all lights up in the future at a certain moment and you know, I'm sitting there with my daughter. I'm just enjoying picking up these moments to sort of unpack with her later. And what's interesting is when there are some things I've brought up that she is so angry that I saw seeded from the first episode. She's like, how did you know that? I'm like, well, I'm older. So there's, she's getting so much out of it. And it makes me think, actually, I think 10, 11, 12, just, you know, is like, maybe the perfect age to enjoy the best of what the show has to offer. Cause it's very stranger things is too scary for her. She's not going to go there, but paper girls gives you a little taste of that. Yeah. In a lo-fi doctor who kind of way, but the hook is the dynamics between the girls and their delight and upset of what their future selves are capable of. Let's drill, drill in a little bit more to those characters and the performances. So, June, can you lay out who our four girls are and, and kind of the arcs that we find them on? I sure can, yeah. They're, you know, they're sort of archetypal, and there's nothing wrong with that. I, I kind of enjoyed that about it because they complicated it a little bit. But the, the four girls um, are Mac, played by Sophia Rosinski. She's kind of the poor kid. She has a crummy home. Uh, you know, we sense substance abuse in her parents, bullying uh, from her sibling. Um, Tough talking punk rascal. Oh, yeah. And and I tell you, one of the great haircuts of 
television in the last couple of years. I've had the same haircut since I was about their age uh, in 1988, and I'm seriously thinking about getting a Mac because it's a classic really good haircut. one. Yeah. Yeah. So Mac is white. Um, KJ is white. Um, she's played by Fina Strat. So she's a rich kid, um, but she also is a jock. She, we see her carrying her hockey stick around, um, and uh, apparently she's a big fan of Wayne Gretzky. Uh, Tiff is black. She is a nerd, a science nerd. She's got these walkie-talkies that we heard mentioned. But that was her talking about her walkie uh, in the uh, in the clip that we heard. And then Aaron, who's kind of the entry character, which I thought was a, I don't know if it's a brave decision, a sort of an interesting decision, because she's in many ways the the most occluded character. She's a shy girl. Uh, she's the sort of the young version of Ali Wong. She's played by Riley Light Nellett. And she's a, you know, a, a Chinese American girl who whose mother really doesn't want her to be uh, going off doing a paper round. Um, but she is determined, and and you can see that she has that determination. She's very ambitious. She wants to be president, uh, and she's not very uh, excited when she finds that her future self is the kind of flaccid Ali Wong. I mean, I think you're right, Hillary, that the acting varies pretty widely among the girls, and that Fina Stratza, who plays KJ, who in in addition to being the rich girl jock, is also Jewish. Um, she seems mar- she's like luminous and marvelous, and I think she and Aaron give the most sophisticated performances of the tweens. Um, oh my goodness, you guys! I thought that Mac was the standout. I thought that she had so much more charisma, and you know, my eyes were always on her. I think that KJ is a great character, great acting, but Mac was a little, you know, kind of out of out of proportion. You kind of want everybody to be on the same plane, and I just thought she was on another plane of charisma and and interest. She has the quality of being like the star actor in her class who who got the um, like cross part role of Oliver in the sixth grade production of of Twist or something. But um, except now that you're describing it, I'm realizing that maybe that's a brilliant actress playing a tween who's putting on a version of herself so perhaps perhaps yeah. i have yeah. to watch the the full eight episode run before we can can conclude um the the depth of that actor's talents um hillary you mentioned that you had some important notes brought to you by your daughter as you embarked on this segment, can you leave us with any additional wisdom or perhaps you've just been cribbing from them all along, but, um, and any other <laughs> thoughts that, ca- that came in with you that our listeners need to hear? These were largely, uh, biographical notes. Um, but I think, you know, one thing that is, um, you know, we talked about, but this, this kind of encounter, this idea of encountering your future self when you're so unformed, I think, is really powerful in the show. And especially, you know, again, I also haven't finished. I have three more episodes yet. So I haven't met all of the future selves or the possibilities of them. But I haven't really seen something where it, the disappointment in um, Aaron's character when she meets Ali Wong is, uh, it's just something, it's something new and something to think about. And for certainly for me to talk about with, with my daughter, what those expectations are, and then how she, the redemption that comes along and the and the way to sort of the, 
the potential of changing the narrative, right? Which is essentially what the show, I think, is going to end up being all about. Um, but we'll see uh, what happens at the end. All right. Well, Hillary, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your views on Paper Girls. It's streaming now on Amazon Prime. Thank you. I want to tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FD Weekend wherever you listen. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. For the third segment of our show today, we are joined by the marvelous Ava Lubell, a lawyer formerly of Slate, now uh, among many other accolades, working with Cornell Law's First Amendment Clinic. Hello, Ava. Welcome to the program. This is kind of a dream come true. I'm very happy to be here. All right. Well, the occasion for our conversation today began with the unofficial Bridgerton musical. This was created by Abigail Barlow and Emily Bear on TikTok over the course of 2021. Uh, They began writing songs to a hypothetical Bridgerton musical. They gained fandom. They gained popularity. They were on the Forbes 30 Under 30 and inexplicably proud to be there. Uh, and they were nominated for a Grammy and then they won it. And throughout this triumphant run, Netflix uh, seemed to indulge this fan art as major corporations that possess copyrights often decide to do because fan art means fandom and interest and general benefit, often, the calculus is. However, recently... Ms. Barlow and Ms. Bear, at least in Netflix's estimation, went too far. They set out to uh, host live performances of the unofficial Bridgerton musical, and Netflix has slapped them with a lawsuit, which raises some questions. Um, could this suit potentially have a bigger chilling effect on fan art projects of this kind? Should we be concerned that corporations are going to be getting too frisky and protecting their copyright? Uh, Or instead, should we feel like these ladies crossed a line and it's fine and Netflix is policing its rights uh, after, you know, demonstrating a fair amount of freedom in the run up? Uh, We will get to these and other thorny and fascinating legal questions in a moment. But first, I feel it is very important for listeners to this show who perhaps are not familiar with Bridgerton the musical to hear the type of work we are talking about. So uh, let us play a little bit of If I Were a Man one of the Bridgerton unofficial musical songs. I guess I have to be a lady. 
smiling and waving, constantly obeying. I guess I need a prince to come and save me, even if I don't need saving. I guess I must sit on a throne I don't own, raising the babies we made all alone. I guess it's a lady, there's just some things I'll never know. But if I were a man, I'd go to Japan, maybe swim in the Seine, and learn to speak French. I'd have the whole world in the palm of my hand. I'd finally do what I could, but I can't. If I were a man... What an accent. Wait, say more about the accent because I was confused about the accent. I don't even know what that accent was supposed to be because first, apart from anything else, if if it is the character that I think they're referencing, the person is actually from the north and is doing a sort of posh accent because the Bridgertons are posh-ish. And I don't even know what that is. That's somewhere in between. And you know what in between is? It's neither. Mm, Okay. All right. Well, so this is the this is the general type of art that we are discussing here. So, um, Ava, in your legal opinion, and this is legally binding advice for us and all of our listeners and (laughs) um, all of the works that they ever work on. um, What what do you make of this lawsuit? What do you think is really going on here? And and what's at stake? So. The first thing that kind of surprised me when I heard about this was that Netflix sued at all because Netflix has a reputation for handling things in kind of an elegant way when it comes to copyright infringement. I don't know if you guys know this, but a f- few years back, there you know started to be fan art around Stranger Things and the way the Netflix lawyers, many of whom I've met and are totally lovely and fun human beings, handled it was to send... Um, kind of their own version of a parody to the individuals who had made kind of a very small work of art and says, Danny and Doug, my walkie talkie is busted. So I had to write this note instead. I heard you launched a Stranger Things pop-up bar, et cetera, et cetera. You kind of get the gist of it. And as someone who's been on the receiving end of a lot of what we call takedown demands for, in you know, potentially inappropriate uses, not that Slate would ever have done such a thing. Um, but you know, usually they're not so friendly. Usually they're not so oriented towards fan service. And so when you dig into this case, what's interesting is that is how Netflix started originally working with these two women is say, you know, we're really impressed by you. We like the spirit of this and probably appreciated it at some form of marketing. Um, and so it started out in this fun, playful place. And, and then it took a turn. And I think that's where we have to start. Like, why did it take a turn? And that's where the questions get a little bit more layered. Right. I mean, I was ready to uh, ride to the defense of fair use and free commentary and, um, you know, have a bit of how how dare they dudgeon about Netflix's legal approach here when I first set out to start researching this topic. And then the more I read about this topic, the more (laughs) I began to side with Netflix. Because essentially, you know, Netflix was like, okay, fine to do this on TikTok. Okay, fine to put these on other platforms. Okay, fine to release an album. Like they officially released an album. And then that album was nominated for a Grammy. And then they like beat Andrew Lloyd Webber for a Grammy (laughs) for this music that you just heard there, which raises its own aesthetic questions, perhaps we can get to. And um, all of this was permitted, you know, I think probably with some sense of the bargain that, that Ava has laid out. And then they were like, hey, we're going to do these live shows. And 
Netflix was like, hey, 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 wait. We have Bridgerton Live experiences. They've been hosting Bridgerton weekends. You can go to a hotel and dress up and have tea cakes or I don't know what, but it's some kind of thing where you pay to have a Bridgerton experience that, that Netflix is making its own money from. So the calculus here or the rationale or at least the expressed rationale is like, okay, this is now you guys cutting into a revenue stream that, you know, is supposed to go back to Netflix uh, as the kind of producing rights owner and also to Julia Quinn, who wrote the initial novels that the show is based on. Um, And they reached out to Barlow and Bear and said, hey, you know, if you're going to do this, you do need to get a license from us for this. Like this is getting into competitive behavior and the women just ignored it basically and were like, nah, I'm going to do it anyway. Like they, they were sort of brash, bold. I don't know. That's like kind of kind of a wild legal choice. Can you comment on, on that a little bit, Ava? Yeah, I, you know, I have a range of things I work on in my legal roles, but I deal with a ton of licenses. And I think there's this idea that there's all or nothing, like you can own something or you can't use it at all. Whereas there's so many middle grounds. You can give someone a license for one really particular use. You can give someone a license for a broad set of uses. You can cut it down by, you know, by area in the world. You can cut it down by period of time. Like there's lots of flexibility. And, you know, I don't think, I mean, Netflix has had a difficult couple of quarters, but I'm not, wouldn't say that this is really going to make the you know, a big difference for their bottom line. But the principle at stake is valuable and not just for Netflix and not just for Julia Quinn, but for a lot of content creators who are having a difficult time monetizing. And that's why we've seen the growth of things like there's now a small claims copyright court because, you know, we want to make sure creators are compensated for, you know, the work they create. That was This is an internal debate I've had with lots of clients where, they are journalists who are creating work and they want there to be protection in the work they're doing. You know, they're doing reporting, they're contributing thought, analysis, experience. We want that to be protected. And just as similar, they want to, you know, make sure that they respect someone else's use. So you, there's a reason that Netflix tends to be pretty cordial is because there's an ecosystem of creators and everyone needs to be respectful of one another. And you don't want to go to litigation. And the reason you don't want to go to litigation is because copyright is like a black hole of legal nonsense. To me, it's just like, it makes no sense um, it's very, very fact specific. It's very, very judge specific. There's some people who will say the moment you monetize, like that is an infringement. That is not at all true. That is a hundred percent legally false, but there, there is a respect principle at place. Um, I, you know, the idea that we're going to cast these guys as the underdogs. I mean, they won a Grammy 30 under 30. Can you think of a higher office to, to occupy than on that hallowed list? <laughs> And, you know, they're, they are institutionalists. The Kennedy Center is about institutionalists as it can possibly get. Right. I mean, it, there was a sense that the, that the kind of Bridgerton fandom turned on them a little bit. June, what struck you in, in reading up on this contretemps? I would say the, the way that we're changing our sympathies around copyright. Uh, it was interesting to hear you talk about creators asserting their rights, because I think for a while... There's been a lot of grumbling about, you know, why are people extending copyrights too long? We've lost a sense of what this is for. And just for, uh, you know, people like Julia Quinn and uh, Shonda Rhimes to be the 
institutions or the people where the sympathy now lies because there is this creator economy that everybody's got a side hustle that everybody's you know trying to start a youtube channel or you know to to whatever it is that they're doing and there's more respect for that feeling that some protection uh for you know and it's not just corporations you know shondaland is a pretty big corporation but but we now see you know well Shonda deserves uh you know some credit and I think she does and I'm actually also sympathetic to that but that feels like something is changing there you know June it's so interesting that dynamic you're describing because I think that so much of my response to this case has to do almost with the etiquette of it like if Netflix's position were from the jump, no fan art should ever exist. This is a curse upon the land. Nobody on TikTok can play with any of our IP, which like that would be a drag. That would be such a drag. So in a world where Netflix from the beginning had gone like full kablamo on these women, I, my sympathies would be more strongly with them. However, I feel like they have taken a judicious approach of like, yeah, let's have, let's have this work for a while. Okay. It is still ours though. Like everything you have done so far, the Grammy, all of it is something we have let you do because we have a right, but we have declined to assert it. And now you have hit the line where we would like to assert our right. And for these people who've benefited so much from that largesse to be like, nah, (laughs) just seems like kind of a dick move to me. But I will also confess to being colored here by the fact that I think the unofficial Bridgerton musical is terrible fan art. So this is relevant. Is it relevant? Not that it's terrible, but the actual nature of the fan art itself. So I had, I have never listened to it until very recently as in earlier this morning. And I think the word (laughs) I already used is treacly. And I was like, well, could this be considered a commentary on Bridgerton in that it has this very Beauty and the Beast 90s Disney vibe to it. And like, it's so bright and, you know, like, oh, is this could be like, oh, this is what Bridgerton is selling us if I were a man. And I was like, but Bridget- Bridgerton is also already a commentary on all of these tropes. So it's actually not doing anything to transform the ideas embodied in Bridgerton. You know, if this were a musical you know, a, a reductive piece of fan art and like The Sound of Music or Mary Poppins or, or and it was really talking about, you know, gender norms as embodied by old society, that would be one thing. But it's commenting on a commentary. So the idea that it's just a whole new work that's breaking ground and it's just, I, uh, I don't buy it. I mean, even suggesting, I mean, this has always been my favorite part of fair use law and, and copyright law as I understand it, which is that you are you know, you have stronger legal ground if you are commenting on satirizing, responding to the work and trying to advance a conversation. Like, I kind of love that 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 notion of commentary and analysis is enshrined somewhere in our legal apparatus as as a one-time editor of a magazine of opinion and commentary. And like, I know that the know it when you see it standard is about porn, but I do (laughs) feel like it applies here, which is like, is this a transformative work? And is this a work that has its own value and is saying its own thing about the world? And like, no, <laughs> like, I'm sorry. <laughs> but this this musical is very, very bad. And if, in fact, Shonda Rhimes and Julia Quinn had set out to make a Bridgerton musical, they would have hired people who were like a better lyricist with less derivative 
works. I mean, even just in that clip I played. So If I Were a Man is the title of a recent hit by Taylor Swift. Um, the kind of like la di la, if I was on the crown, intonation feels like super derivative of um, the King songs from Hamilton, I think. Uh, the the kind of swerving, is it posh or is it cockney nature of the accent, June has already dissected. Um, I think the most charitable interpretation, Ava, is yours, which is like the commentary is what if Bridgerton was not um, kind of a very 2020s um, response to the petticoats genre, but was in fact just early 90s Beauty and the Beast. Um, but it's just not that smart like the it's just not that good and 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 so i i my judgment is clouded by my judgment <laughs> well, my the, legal the, judgment the, is clouded by my aesthetic judgment well see that's the part that actually where, where my hackles get raised because yeah i agree not good but well, does it have to be good to escape the kind of the bounds of of licensing and copyright i mean does that make it more transformative if it's good well i don't think it, it, it technically doesn't matter, but it does go to people's incentives, right? And those incentives can cut either way. If it's good, you're like, well, I don't want someone to capitalize this versus it's good. This is awesome. And I'm, you know, this happens with major league sports all the time. Like this is such a cool thing that we want to promote it. So it goes back to the the marketing question. But I do think the good, the good or badness of the actual piece is relevant when we talk about moral rights, which is like a whole other area of copyright law, it's a little bit more European than US. But the idea is like, I as the owner of a piece of work, like I have an interest in the way you adapt my project, and that it be good and consistent with my values and my vision. We're seeing Lin-Manuel Miranda, there is an adaptation of Hamilton that I think went that he just set his lawyers on because it went very contrary to his values. And as creators, the idea that you just you know, you make a TV show and it's off into the world and you have no emotional investment in it when it is this project that you worked on with so many other human beings. And there was a lot of effort and sweat and blood and tears that went into it. Like, of course you care. We don't just disclaim our emotional attachment to the works we create. I feel that about like a paragraph of contract I've drafted. So I can't imagine (laughs) what Shonda Rhimes and Julia Quinn feel. Since you mentioned that Hamilton situation, the thing that absolutely blew my mind about that, I mean, obviously that is just completely wrong. You cannot turn a work like Hamilton into this, you know, religious, anti-gay, anti, you know, whatever. But I learned from that case that in ch- in church as part of a service, you can, there's no such thing as copyright law. You can play whatever the hell you want. Where did that, I mean, I know where it came from, but that is so wrong. Sidebar. <laughs> You, you, we're learning many legal facts on this on this segment. Well, um, I will say, June, to your question, I, I, I think it's less that its goodness is what makes it defensible or indefensible. It's more that in order to be a commentary, in my view, like in order to, to be transformative and to be saying something about the underlying text, you have to reach a certain level of of sophistication in what you're making for it to be a successful comment and really not just derivative. And that's what, that's what feels like it's at the, at the core of this fight. So hopefully um, even if they lose or settle, it will not um, frost over the rest of the generative fanfic internet. Uh, And Ava, thank you so much for coming on the show to walk us through this battle. My pleasure. Let's hope they get better advisors going forward and keep making creative things. 
All right. Well, if you want to know more about this, you can check out a slate piece on the subject, Why Bridgerton Fans Turned Against the Bridgerton Musical by Laura Wheatman Hill. All right. Uh, June, the time has come to endorse. What do you got? Oh, my God. I am so excited about my endorsement this week. So I've been preparing to move and it's a really like it, it sucks your brain power. Uh, and I have been unable to read, but I have been listening to audiobooks. And very specifically, I've been listening to the lesbian romance novels of a writer called Harper Bliss, who I'd never heard of. I found them just by Googling lesbian romance, not Googling actually, but in uh, Libby, the, you know, where you can borrow audiobooks from your local library. I just did lesbian romance. That's how I found it. I, it was just by chance. I'm now obsessed. Um, she's very prolific and she is the romance writer, most like a soap opera writer. And I, if there is one genre I cannot get enough of, it is soap opera. So for example, she has 10 books in this series called the Pink Bean series, the Pink Bean being a uh, a coffee shop in Darlinghurst, uh, Sydney, mm-hmm. Australia. And there's 10 of these and they all kind of like, there's a lot of connections between them. Uh, you know, somebody will show up in one book, uh, they're a customer of the, of the, of the coffee shop and then they, you know, go to their TV job where they're another character from another, you know, so they're always interacting. And then there's another series called French Kissing. Don't like the title, but what can you do? Uh, And these involve a whole bunch of women in Paris. And this series is so much of a soap opera that they are not even called books. They're called season one, season two. That's the book. And then instead of chapters, there are episodes like this fully kind of sketched out like like TV, like soap operas. And here's the thing. I love the ambition of these books. So, for example, I'm not going to give it away exactly because it would it would be a spoiler. But in the French Kissing series, one of the characters is a very, very eminent French politician. Fictional, but there's a lot of kind of accurate uh, detail about French politics um, and then in another standalone book that, that I think Harper Bliss was a co-writer of, the main character is the second daughter of the Queen of England. So she's a full-on mm. princess. Mm. And this, the story begins with, um, you know, like a photo shoot for the royal wedding, which is a lesbian wedding that's going to happen. Anyway, I'm probably not making these books sound as glorious as they are. I will also mention there is a lot of sex, some of it kinky. But I'm just, I, I, my life has been transformed by this author. And I, I just think everybody should be enjoying French Kissing, for example. All right. This is a ringing endorsement. I'm, I'm all for the books that, um, that you can stay attached to when you've got a lot going on in your brain. Exactly. So yeah. uh, this sounds like a hearty endorsement for that type of read. What are you endorsing this week, Julia? Okay, well, there's always a little bit of a summer strut afterglow when the odds and ends that didn't make it onto the main playlist still still circle around my Spotify as I keep listening to the slightly bigger list than the final cut. Um, one of our self-prescribed edicts for at least a lot of us on that show is that we try not to recommend songs by artists you might know. So I did not include the song by up-and-coming act The Rolling Stones, but there was a really great... <laughs> Rolling Stones song recommended that I did not know. It's called 100 Years Ago uh, 2020, which I have not looked up yet whether that means it was 
the 2020 version of it or just 100 <laughs> years ago from 2020 or what. It does not have a particularly Roaring Twenties vibe as a song. Mary and I, we were set up on the gate Just gazing at sunrise and the sky What in the days we had no secrets away We had seen about a hundred years ago but it has a bit of a um, shaggy quality to it. It's like Rolling Stones by way of the band or something. It doesn't feel quite as sinewy as some of their um, the, the songs that I most associate with the Rolling Stones. Um, it's got a little bit more lushness to it. And uh, I just recommend it to our, our listenership as a, as a Rolling Stones deep cut. Um, or maybe not so deep cut. Like I said, Chris Melanfi's not here and... I, I I can't Google songs. I'm I'm, I'm contractually prevented from doing so. Only Chris Malafi can do that research for me. So we'll have to give you more information at another time. But uh, the song is 100 <laughs> Years Ago, 2020, by little known act, The Rolling Stones. Hear that? Hear that? Lead singer is really uh, gonna gonna go somewhere. I'll check him out. All right, June, thank you so much for holding down the fort today. And thank you to our three wonderful guests, uh, Nadira Goff, Hilary Fry, and Ava Lubell. You can find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page. That's at slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com. Send us suggestions for topics, argue with us, whatever you want. Our intro music is by the composer Nick Bertel. Our production assistant is Nadira Goff. Our producer is Cameron Drews. I'm Julia Turner. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you soon. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.